0: Welcome to Bor Borigmi, Food for Thought. My name is Vamsi Reddy, and I'm here with my co host, Akul Munjal. We're excited for you to join us as we take a deep dive into the contemporary topics of medicine, philosophy, psychology, ethics, and so much more.
1: This is Akul Munjal. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we are medical students, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast reflect any organization or institution. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Last week, we talked about psychiatry and mental health during a pandemic. And these next couple weeks, we wanted to talk about education and the educational impact of COVID-19, but also just education as a whole. Today, we're joined by Mr. David Reynolds. Could you please introduce yourself for our listeners?
2: Sure. First, thanks, Bumse and Akul, for having me join you for this conversation. I'm really honored to speak with both of you. I am David Reynolds, and I serve as the point person for the Impact Project at the Professional Association of Georgia Educators, or PAGE. And before that, for about 30 years, at four schools in three different school systems, I taught middle schoolers, fulfilled various administrative roles, including curriculum work, crafting grant proposals, strategic direction efforts, and professional learning. And today, in my work at PAGE, I continue to interact with educators around the state and even beyond, and I'm involved in some research, some writing, and a podcast project.
1: Um, before we kind of dive down into a further delve into education, we just wanted to ask, how has coronavirus changed education currently?
2: Well, I think it's impacted virtually every sector in some way. Uh, public education serves as a central pillar of our nation's culture because it provides opportunities to virtually any child to participate in learning opportunities and have access to myriad options after their official structured school term ends, their schooling is complete. So any interruption of this system is going to have a cumulative effect or impact over time. Well, that being said, of course, the general belief is that this virus situation is not permanent. So we're not looking at a really disruptive totally debilitating uh, shift in education, but there is an immediate and long-term impact. So short-term as the guest on your pilot's podcast episode pointed out, interaction between people involved has shifted from face-to-face to virtual or digital. So whether it's telemedicine or telelearning, the vital component of personal interaction is different. So there's pressure on this technology infrastructure with regard to bandwidth availability, connection and processing speeds and reliability. And if you add to that, the percentage of students who may not have access to hardware necessary to really shift to an online meaningful learning experience, it can be, it can be problematic. And it's not just the lessons or the content because there's new questions now about how to appropriately and fairly gauge learning and understanding assessment tests, that sort of thing. How do you, how do you grade in this new, in in this new environment? And so, you know, how do you embed flexibility or creativity fairly into the traditional aspects of school, like graduation and adult learning and ensuring that students who are eligible for meal support still have access to meals. So as we speak, there, there are literally thousands upon thousands of teachers, and paraprofessionals, and bus drivers, and food service workers, and others doing doing their best to support students in a new way. So it's really just shifted the way that people look at um, their daily work, and that's the short-term impact, but there are long-term impacts as well.
0: And just going into those long-term impacts, you've mentioned just the day-to-day how everybody has changed how they live their lives right now, but what long-term consequences do you see that coronavirus could trigger?
2: Sure, as with other sectors, there will be pieces of, you know, this new way of doing things that will stick. So I've had some opportunities to speak with some teachers since schools have closed and what I've heard, and some people might say, well, this is anecdotal because the the n is so small, spoken to a handful of people. But I think it's actually representative of what educators are doing overall. And I think it's the I think it indicates what their approach, their approach and their intent is. And that's this, that they are really seeking out the best ways to maintain quality relationships with and academic support for their students. And in doing so, a whole lot of these people are now immersed in video conference calls. And that's they're doing that to work among themselves and to and to stay up to speed with current and emerging technologies and some of the shifting practices that we talked about a minute ago. So the other long-term change might be the public's perception of teachers. So people who've suddenly been thrust into the role of supporting their children's learning in a new way, I think they're pausing to consider the unbelievable responsibility that teachers and other educator leaders shoulder day in and day out. So if you, the listener would just imagine for a minute what's involved in creating a learning experience For anywhere from 20 to over 100 students per day, five days a week, with all the different levels of understanding that the students bring to the table, their areas of interest, their varying degrees of home support, and at the same time, they need to navigate all those personalities and needs in an individualized way while they're maintaining a focus on helping every single student learn what they need to learn, know what they need to know, and be able to do what they need to do and do all this while the children are staying you know safe and happy that happens at school every single day so there's many more is- other there are many other issues that teachers have to consider as well such as life threatening food allergies managing a classroom or departmental budget engaging in professional learning and then you know assessing students work you know reading it and providing feedback so all those things are shifting some of those now are not the school's responsibility like managing 20 different personalities in the room at the same time, or dealing with the life-threatening food allergies in the midst of other students. But, so I think on the other side of the, of this current situation, there may be a pendular swing back to a posture of respecting the good work that teachers do. And something else I thought of just yesterday is at higher ed. And I was thinking about medical school specifically. Uh, my wife asked, Because you all know Jackson, our son, in medical school, ending third year going into fourth. Well, what's going to happen with this fourth year now? When is the official shift to your third year completer, your fourth year student? And what will that look like? And will that ripple out toward residency programs? And I thought people need to be thinking, because of this situation, about long term shifts in how the structure is set up, even at medical schools, for example. So my thought was, what if fourth year was fast-tracked in the following way? If you have already completed a rotation in the specialty that you are going to pursue for your residency, then you do one more and you really immerse yourself in that. And that's actually more than you might have gotten in the traditional structure because you really might only hit that once. But if you know where you're going and you know you've got a very strong need to move physicians into the field, then let's immerse these fourth year students into one more rotation, perhaps in a similar setting or another one of the same specialty. And if you have not yet engaged in that rotation for your area, for your specialty, then do a double dip in that in year four and make that the sum total of your most important rotation experiences. And then, Defer those other rotations not to diminish their value until residency itself. I think it would be perfectly appropriate, even if it's not something that the establishment has done in the past, to have a first or second year resident pop out, so to speak, from the hospital that he or she is serving and go do an OBGYN residency or go do a PEEDS residency or a neurosurgery residency or thoracic or orthopedics or whatever it is. And just be on leave from that residency for a while while you're still learning so that the crossover between specialties, those connections are still being made and it's happening in real time alongside physicians. So if there's a move to fast track medical students into the field, especially from year three to four and out, then there needs to be some creative, flexible ways of ensuring that they're still immersed in content alongside practitioners, which you guys know is much more valuable than just the, the lecture series or, or World drilling online uh, sex modules and that sort of thing, and just shift how residency looks. Even if you added a year to residency and you backed off a full year of some of the, the shelf test components inside third and fourth year, that could solve a lot of problems. So I bring that up to say that I believe that there will be shifts in multiple sectors of education, not just PK-12, that will have to look at more creative, flexible, authentic ways to ensure that the learners are engaged in work that actually makes a difference when they move into the next level, whether that's practicing medicine or moving into the classroom as a teacher, those sorts of things.
1: So one of the things that you mentioned early in your response was the role technology has played and how some of the meetings that you previously had in person have become meetings that you now have over Zoom or other, other things like that. So, how can we use technology productively to engage in communication and not get overwhelmed or um, envious of other people on social media or stuff like that?
2: Well, first, I would say that technology doesn't have to mean digital. We do jump to that statement or to that concept or that thought almost automatically. It doesn't have to be virtual digital Uh, technology can is any tool, you know, to help you accomplish whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, but it's not solely about being connected to a computer, but at its core, it's just helping you get something done. So what was chalk and slate or then quill pen and pencil and now texting or video conferencing is still simply about communicating. So we should look at communication as not just a way to, Convey what we're thinking or what we think someone else needs to know to others, but also as a way to learn from others. So, regardless of the technology, the central questions are what needs to be done to support the people I serve so they're prepared for whatever comes next? So, we can do that via Zoom, we can do that via a phone call, we can do that via face to face, should that return to some semblance of normalcy. But once you're clear about what you're doing and who you are serving, And why you are doing it so that's the equivalent basically of of what problem needs to be solved then you decide how technology and which technology can be used to accomplish your aims so we shouldn't use the latest tech tools just because they're available you know every single problem is not a nail with technology as the hammer you know to solve it and so the right tool yielded the right way matters more when you look at results and progress so you know, right now we could be using a, a even more advanced technology right now if we wanted to. Perhaps I'm not wearing headphones and uh, you guys are from our conversation earlier. I know that you're doing that. And so we, we could enhance this with some sort of automatic as we go transcription process. We don't have to use every single bell and whistle and always employ the latest technology. It's about who are you serving? What is the change you are trying to impact to make happen? And then how are you going to get there? So do I think that we should learn and use technology and keep creating and leveraging better iterations of it? Absolutely. But it shouldn't be to the exclusion of keeping our focus on our work, what we're trying to accomplish, and our relationships, who we're serving as we do that.
0: No, those those are great points. And I think often people do lose themselves in trying to get the newest, greatest thing, that they often lose the fundamentals of what education truly entails. And just quick, uh, because you've talked about technology, um, just for our listeners, how long have you been teaching in the educational system?
2: I started in 1981. And after my first year of teaching, I quit. Yeah. So I thought, anything is better than this. And I went and built cabinets for a year. And about six weeks into that job, I thought anything's better than this. And I went back to a different school uh, to in the same school district. And then I taught continuously uh, or I was in the education system continuously until I retired from that part of my career about eight years ago. And I've been working at PAGE since 2008, I retired from public schools in 2011. So it was right at, it was just under 30 years of of real time uh, in teaching roles and administrative roles and some support, some support roles. But as far as actual teaching was concerned, it was 10 years in the classroom. So I am not a 30, 35, 40 year teaching veteran. Uh, So there are plenty of people out there who have far more expertise in street cred with regard to decades upon decades of teaching thousands upon thousands of students. I did have thousands of students because I taught every single student in the school every year. But, uh, so that's, that's a quick summary of the amount of time.
1: So one of the things that you said was how you switched into like a carpentry type of job. So how do you feel like those other alternative careers that you had influenced your ability to be a teacher?
2: Well, once I shifted, and it was, just, it was just a year, but it was the area that I had trained in. I was, I was teaching industrial arts, so I was teaching woodworking, mechanical drawing. This is before CAD really existed, computer-aided design and drafting, and electricity, those sorts of things. That's what I was teaching, obviously not before electricity existed. Let me rephrase that. So I was teaching woodworking and drafting and those sorts of things before CAD really existed. So when I left teaching after year one and went to a cabinet shop, a mom and pop cabinet shop, it was still woodworking and carpentry and some of those sorts of things that I was familiar with. However, I had never done it in that way before. So I was the student immediately. There were actually machines there I had not used during my entire undergraduate experience and there were different ways to spec out jobs and there were customer relationships that i had not interacted had not conducted before uh, as a small business uh, person so i think that ripples over whether you think about it at the time or not i believe that all of your experiences keep feeding into the next one and you do learn from them and you transfer what you learn to a new or unique situation and just realizing how, as someone who had a four-year college degree in a specific area, how I was kind of clueless on some of the stuff that Richard was trying to teach me, does make you realize these students, some of them don't really know what that claw is for on the, on the back handle side of the hammerhead. And so there's a lot of unfamiliarity. So you really have to remember that you don't judge anybody based on where they are you just use that and help them learn to get to the next step it's all it all goes back to that same thing we mentioned earlier that your role is ensuring that whoever you're working with is prepared to do whatever's next and i think that's the biggest lesson i picked up from cabinet making and the fact that i actually enjoyed teaching more than i thought when i compared it to some other things that were out there
0: that's fascinating and as someone who has immersed themselves in the educational, educational system since the 80s and now into 2020, has the educational model shifted and is it better or worse than it's been in the past?
2: I'm going to correct something first. I started teaching in 1982 and in response to your question about how the model has changed, there are a whole lot of choices available now that people might not even think about. So we do have traditional public schools. There are also private secular schools. There are private faith-based schools. Homeschooling is another option. Virtual and online schools are another. And then some traditional schools are using a flipped classroom model. And then there are residential boarding schools. We have for-profit charter schools. There are public charter schools. There's college and career academies. So there are, and there are alternative schools. And sometimes students are there by choice and sometimes it's via a court decision. And there are also hybrid structures where you attend some classes face to face and some classes online, like dual enrollment, for example, and you'll know, move on when ready, those sorts of things so there may be more of those, but those are the ones I can think of that's a, those are a lot of different options that's a lot of choices. so I did attend traditional public school and served all of my roles as an educator in one, so I really cannot offer an expert opinion on the other configurations or arrangements but I think that the increased range of choice is a definite change because all of those didn't exist in the early 80s. And there's a gentleman named Jamie Vollmer who wrote a book called Schools Cannot Do It Alone, and he highlights the increasing breadth and depth of requirements that are placed on schools today and by default that are placed on teachers. So that to me is the biggest shift in what's happened as far as a model change is that the Scope of responsibility for what schools are expected to do continues to increase decade after decade after decade. He includes a chart in his, with his book or on his website that shows all of the new areas of focus that schools are now responsible for from the forties, the fifties, the sixties, all the way up through 2010, 2020. And I really think if, if you look at that, you would be amazed at how far, the responsibility expectations for schools has expanded beyond basic content areas and making sure that students are safe while they're at school.
1: Uh, so one of the things you also mentioned was the chalkboard. So that's kind of something that's traditionally been uh, associated with education and being a teacher. But I don't, I don't, I never had a teacher that actually had a chalkboard, and I don't know if Bomzi did either. Um, because we used whiteboards. And then later in high school, we used smart boards. So um, did you ever use the chalkboard? Or did you go um, straight to the whiteboard? And uh, which did you prefer?
2: I used the chalkboard when I was teaching. Absolutely. In fact, when I was teaching at Forest Park, junior high and Forest Park Middle School, the chalkboard was my canvas. And so when we were Introducing a new machine—the table saw, the radial arm saw, the jointer, the planer, whatever—at the end of the day, I would draw a big version of the machine on the chalkboard uh, to fill it up and have lines going to the key parts, and we would—that would be the basis for the introduction to the machine to kind of look at it first in the classroom setting before we moved to the shop, the woodworking shop area, and then saw those pieces there and talk about some safety rules and that sort of thing. I use it every day and any, any notes to students there, there was no texting, there were no emails, there wasn't a portal where you could get on and students didn't have a Google classroom account and you know teachers didn't push out work to their students o- over the holidays. like, like you guys enjoy all the time. So it was simply on a piece of paper, or on the chalkboard. And there's also some things about the paper that you really don't know about as well. If you didn't even have a teacher use a chalkboard, then I'm sure you didn't have anybody make their photocopies, which is really in quotation air quotes there, because we didn't have photocopiers to use for student paperwork either. We had a different kind of machine that was very interesting uh, to create papers for students. And the ink was purple. And it's just a, that's a, that's a separate story. So yes, I did use a chalkboard and no, I never even had a marker board, a whiteboard except the last four years of my teaching I did, but it was not a smart board that was not introduced until I was an administrator possibly even after I left the administrative roles at the schools. So didn't have any experience with that at all. I often had a nice, uh, chalk line across the front or back of my pants. If I wore navy blue pants or dark pants, it would be a horizontal lines going across my clothing where I might accidentally brush against the chalk tray that sat at the bottom of the chalkboard where you guys would see markers now at the bottom of the marker board.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and as someone who has been in public school, maybe you're a little bit biased, but uh, we mentioned before about charter schools and public schools versus like private schools and um, schools that are religiously faith-based, Does do the opportunities in which people pay for their education, whether it be a private school or a charter school, does that mean that they have a quote-unquote better education or a higher quality education?
2: I don't think you can paint that with a broad brush. I would point to one guest that I had on my podcast, Vlada Galan. I believe it was episode six, and she had experiences in private schools and made the switch to public schools for her high school portion of her education. And now she's an international political consultant who oversees presidential level campaigns in multiple countries. And she gave a great testimonial to the value of and preference for the public education choice that she had when she was in high school. And she believes that it provided her with far more opportunities, that it was much more authentic, that there was a wider range of people and personalities and experiences that you got to interact with, and that you made a lot of decisions on your own that really made a lot of difference for the next semester, the next year, she articulated it very, very well. And I do echo her belief that the public school experience is probably richer because of the diversity that exists in a public school, not just talking about uh, ethnicity, but just the diversity of backgrounds, the diversity of uh, socioeconomic range, the diversity of experiences, just in the number of people uh, that you get to interact with during the time that you, from the time you enter kindergarten until, until you graduate. Also, I think that the only true comparison that can be made, it has to be focused on the teachers that are actually the heart of the school. Sure, students are the heart of the school. There, w- there would be no school if there weren't any students, I get that, but the teachers are the, the heart of the school. And if your teachers are truly getting to know you as a student and ensuring that you are successful and caring about you as an individual, and I believe that happens in great numbers and at a great percentage of the time at public school, just based on my own experience and the schools that I get to visit today, I think that's the determining factor and was that a quality learning experience? Are you truly prepared for what's next? And if you look at the percentages, I don't have a figure in front of, in front of me or the website to look to verify the, the number. So I won't give us exact number, but the overwhelming majority of people in our country do attend or did attend public school. And when you look at all the leaders and all the thought leaders and all the decision makers and the accomplishers and, and the people who get things done, they are graduates of the public school process. And it's not an accident that we have the most thriving uh, economy, the best form of government. I might be a bias, but I believe that about our, our nation, anywhere on earth, the current crisis and its impact on those things notwithstanding uh, this is a great place, and a as I mentioned in one of my earlier comments, public education is central to the the way that we do business here in this country and So, I have to say that a public school education is equally valuable and I believe more valuable than a private school experience. It's just more rich and it just reaches more people and it's had a far far greater impact on the entire world. If you look at what the graduates of public school have done in their communities or in in their leadership roles, even if it's a parenting leadership role or helping their neighbor, it doesn't really matter. The the ingenuity and the creativity and the desire to innovate and just keep helping everybody move up. I think that's a, a byproduct of our public school system.
1: So it would be unfair of us not to talk about standardized tests in this conversation. So I guess, how do you feel about standardized tests and do you think they're a good way to demonstrate how well you have learned information or how good of a learner you are?
2: Short answer is I won't dis standardized tests and say they're evil. Standardized tests are bad. Tests, and I would call them predictive tests instead of standardized tests. And you could look at testsense.com, dot com, and look at John Tanner's work to get a really great summary of why these should be called predictive tests versus standardized tests. He was a guest on the Lead, Learn, Change podcast as well, and he explains those things very eloquently. So not to be dismissive of them, the problem is that they have been moved into a place of prominence that they should not occupy when making evaluations about the quality of an individual student's learning experience or about a school overall. And so they do measure something, but they are not the indicator of everything. So they are a snapshot at best of how well one student performs on a given day for a few hours about a very finite set of, con- set of information, a finite subset of content. That content is a subset of everything that that particular subject area that's being tested consists of. And that subject area or those subject areas are another subset of everything that's actually absorbed and students are exposed to in school. And that's even a subset of all of your experiences and everything that you actually learn along the way. And it's not possible for a predictive or standardized test to capture what you really know, understand, and are able to do. The only way you really see that is in practice. And that is if you know something if you can recall something, that's a very low level degree of understanding. It might be necessary. I do know my multiplication tables, for example. And so I know that, but I can also apply that when I need to. And if I see that, you know, the limes are 10 for a dollar, I can do some math and figure out how much 20 are going to cost me pretty quickly. I can also apply that in another, transfer that to another situation when it's not an explicit math problem, but I realize we need to multiply here in order to figure out how to create this budget or how to bring this particular project to scale and what might this look like. So you need to be, you need to understand something well enough to be able to explain it to somebody. So explanation is one way of, of getting that across. And then the other way is to uh, be able to actually apply it and use it in a Situation, and then you have to be able to transfer that. So this may be getting into how do you know that you know something, but when you can actually use it and apply it in a new situation that you weren't expecting, that means that you really understand it. And I would add, if you can teach it to somebody else, then you also know that. I don't believe that a standardized test can provide you with that sort of information. I also don't believe that it is as necessary as people believe it is to even administer some of those tests. If you think about standardized tests at the kindergarten level, for example, a kindergarten teacher knows his or her students extremely well. They know which students can read, which ones can write, which words they struggle with, if it's an initial consonant issue. Whatever is going on, they know who can count over 100 They know who can identify their colors and their shapes, who plays well together, you know, who is helpful. They know all of that stuff about them. I don't believe that you need a a test to know if that child is ready for what's next in first grade or whatever the next grade level or the next set of content is. A good teacher knows that. There's an absence of trust built into many systems And so we place an over-reliance on an easily measured metric on something that we can then say, this is easy. We don't want you to have judgment because there may be some people at some point somewhere who abuse the flexibility they have with subjectivity and do something that they shouldn't do. I have not seen that to be the case. Again, I believe that teachers by and large, overwhelming supermajority actually like their students, care about their students, and want them to succeed. I have never met an educator who wakes up in the morning and says, I would like to see how miserable I can make somebody today. That's not the case, you know? So I think that we place too much emphasis on the tests and even some, I think that's another byproduct that might grow out of this current situation that we talked about earlier that we're dealing with right now, this pandemic, perhaps the LSAT and the PSAT and the MCAT and some of these other professional tests that students take in order to enter or be admitted to medical school, law school, pharmacology uh, programs, those sorts of things. Maybe those will be viewed less significantly than recommendations from practicing respected practitioners who can vouch for someone's work ethic and their likelihood of success and their current level of understanding and their desire to actually be a good fill-in-the-blank teacher, educator, physician, uh, pharmacist, attorney, whatever. So I, I hope that, that that shifts that way, that we, we fall away from over-reliance on standardized Testing. There are some medical schools, for example, I think Johns Hopkins might be one of them, that now says you don't have to have the MCAT. If you graduated from one of these other under, undergraduate, undergraduate programs with a degree in a certain area, we know that you know the content that's going to be tested on this particular test or that you've been prepared enough with the foundational knowledge that you're going to be successful as a year one medical student and then during year one we can help you be successful in year two and so on there are schools doing that there are also i just read this week there's also uh, at the undergraduate level there are colleges saying we're not going to be concerned about an act or an sat score going forward so i think that if we can do that now that says we could have done that then, and we should probably consider doing it in the future. So they're not bad or evil, they're misused, and you can't take a standardized test set of scores and say this is a better school than that school because these test scores are higher. Because test scores can be short-term manipulated, not in an unethical way, but if you teach solely content that's related to a test and you work on test prep skills and those sorts of things to the exclusion of some other types of areas of focus, you can bump some, some numbers. It's the great schools that do that and graduate students and have students in community programs where business leaders want them to come work with them as interns and apprentices and those sorts of things. And there's a lot of community involvement and a lot of student choice. And Really, a great school. One of the indicators is how many students are involved in something outside of the traditional academic coursework. And schools that really focus on making sure every student has a place—that's a great measure that you may not see ever reflected in a standardized test score.
0: That's a, that's very true, and I think Akul and I can both attest to the fact that we've taken numerous standardized tests throughout our lives, or it almost feels like our lives are a series of standardized tests back to back just based on medical education. Um, And you brought up a lot of really, really good points, and you've been consistently doing that. So one of the things you did bring up was the difference between standardized testing and then the practice of something, right? For example, in medicine, the difference between step one versus the practice in your third year of um, clinical rotations. In order to do well on standardized tests, it takes a lot of time to study for, but it also takes a lot of time to be a good clinician. And there's only 24 hours in a day. So how would you think that learners should balance their demands of a standardized test and the anxiety and the time it takes to, um, and the emphasis of those standardized tests, as well as the practice of whatever material it's trying to get at.
2: So that almost renders inconsequential my previous response, because I spent all this time saying, wow, here's why we shouldn't use standardized tests. And the reality is they are still used, and they're extremely high leverage tools that impact lives like yours, Vamsi, and yours, Akul, and, and Jackson's, because if you don't hit the score, then you're not getting in. So hopefully that will shift over time, as we just mentioned, and then you all have shelf tests and things like that as you go through these uh, year three and year four rotations, and the scores matter on those, especially with the specialty that you're going to pursue as a physician. So that's a reality. So should you say, well, standardized tests don't really say who I am as a future educator or as an attorney or as a physician or as a steel worker or uh, an accountant or whatever. Uh, No, of course not. You still have to prepare for those. And it's not a cop out, but I really believe that the it depends has to be the answer because it has to be individualized. I believe each student, each learner will figure out where that point of diminishing returns hits for them. If you spend four hours a day studying content, will eight hours a day actually be beneficial to you? It may take a couple of years of medical school, but to really figure that out or read the particular section well enough to know what what might be tested, but it's really it's really almost impossible to prepare for those types of situations because the vast quantity of detail that's embedded in a single medical specialty, for example, is so great that the intersection of systems and the intersection of specialties can create literally tens of thousands of legitimate questions that you should probably know, you know, when it's time to take a test. And you're going to be tested on. 196 or 203 of those. And then that's, that's your score, so to speak. So each person has to decide where the law of diminishing returns occurs. And then I think that you have to just balance that with how much practice, how much study on your own, on things outside of the predictive standardized test score you have to spend. My hope is that medical schools and other colleges, whether that's colleges of education or any, any school will, look at test scores as a snapshot inside a photo album or inside a movie about the particular student and say, here's one picture. There are a whole lot of others that we can also look at and weight them appropriately. I think that may be where the problem comes in. It goes back to the previous response, weighting them inappropriately seems to be the problem because you should not fail a test about mechanical drawing. When I took my TCT, the teacher certification test, I shouldn't fail that. I had years of engineering draft, mechanical drawing, advanced engineering, drafting, that sort of thing. I should be able to pass a standardized test, but should an opportunity to pursue a career in education where I can continue to learn over time. And I probably still know more than my ninth grade students who are entering drafting for the first time. Should that opportunity for me to do that be completely eliminated because I'm not in the top five or 10% on a particular metric? I don't think so. I really think it has to be balanced with other input from people who matter and people who know. So back to how do you balance this in the practice of, I just think that every opportunity that anybody has to engage with a true practitioner an official needs to be taken advantage of. A teacher doesn't have to only learn from the officially assigned mentor that is paired with him or her for the year. Your peers and those who think like you or think differently and therefore can help you just emerge over time as you're immersed in your work. And I'm sure that in your rotations that you've moved through in year three, you have met multiple kinds of physicians and nurses and other medical support staff, and their knowledge level may have been the same, but their desire to teach you may have been quite different. And so I think we really need to lean toward people who can help us learn, even if we're not officially connected with them, find that point where this is too much studying. I'm actually going to forget stuff now because I'm trying to cram in so much and it's it's not going to help me and just move ahead and have some confidence and not be overly concerned. That's very difficult to do in practicality because it's very stressful to think, I have to pass this test. The problem is that's actually a little more important if you're training to be an emergency room physician or someone who's going to deliver babies or fix broken bones, or do brain surgery. Those types of things really matter, and you need to have people who are so intellectually gifted and, and skilled that they can operate in that stressful situation and take care of it and help their patients. It may not be as important in some other fields, not that the work is not as important, but sometimes the test is not capturing what happens. So you have to work on balancing how much time you spend studying, how much time you spend in the clinical setting or as a student teacher or who you hang around with after work if you're a teacher and who you talk to. I think it comes down to the relationships every single time. Who are you trying to serve? Who can you learn from? What are you trying to accomplish? You just have to balance them. And I just, I really do hope that People will back off on the the decision makers will make shifts rather on how to weigh the standardized test versus practitioner recommendations, whether that's from a teacher for a student teacher, whether that's a physician for a, a medical student.
1: So uh, that'll be the end of the first part of a multi-part series with Mr. Reynolds. Before we go, would you just like to give a brief shout
0: out to your own podcast?
2: The podcast is Lead, Learn, Change, and it's available on any podcast platform.
0: Thank you for joining us for part one, Mr. Reynolds.
2: Thanks very much. I look forward to finishing this conversation.